0: Our friends have said, that, my name's Mike, we're working our way towards Christmas, we're working through Matthew's Gospel, we're thinking about what it means to be followers of Jesus. Let's pray together, we're in Matthew 2, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word to us. And we thank you that as we prepare for this Christmas season, that you might be preparing us, preparing our hearts, preparing our, our lives to make room, to make way for the Lord Jesus. And so please be with us this morning as we hear your word. Please provide comfort to us uh, as your people that you are a God who not only makes promises but keeps them. And even though the world is uncertain and fearful and a frightening place, that you are in control of all things and that you bring about your purposes. So we pray now that as we hear your word, that we might listen carefully to what it says and that we might delight in your promises to us. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard not to draw attention to yourself, especially when you are wanting to be inconspicuous. But there we were, standing out like sore thumbs, a busload of Aussie tourists, getting off our air-conditioned luxury coach, now standing on the streets of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a place where you go to look. It's not a place where you want to be seen. But despite heavy security presence everywhere, it's a dangerous place full of uncertainty, a place of insecurity and deep unrest. And so, like browns cows, we made our way to the Church of the the Nativity, the place where tradition says that Jesus was born. You know that you're somewhere important in Israel when the Catholics have built a church on top of it. (laughs) And sure enough, they have in Bethlehem. Armed soldiers and metal detectors welcomed us into the church building that represents Christmas. The room we entered into was filled with excitement, there were people everywhere, and accents indicated that they were from everywhere too. Big room, strangely lit, lots of religious idols and symbolism. But that's not what the crowds were there for, and it's not what we'd come to see there either. Long queue downstairs underneath the church led to a cramped, crowded, dark, damp cave. Marked by lamps and marble tiles is the place where tradition says that Jesus was born. Now, more than 2,000 years later, in the most unwelcoming and uninviting of places, people from all over the world still come. They come to worship Jesus at the place where he was born. All around the world we still celebrate Christmas, the day we remember Jesus' birth. Child born King of the Jews... Jesus, the long awaited Messiah of Israel, born into a stable, into an unstable lowly feeding trough, born into poverty and social controversy, born amongst rumours and speculation, born of questionable parents and questionable parentage. His father Joseph knows that the child isn't his, his mother Mary still claiming to be a virgin. But by way of contrast, And Matthew makes the point for us in chapter 2. Shortly after Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was the death of the king Herod of Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. Herod was a king over Judea, a Jewish king installed by the Romans. Herod was called Great, Herod the Great. And his greatness was largely derived from his many building projects. Everywhere you go today in Israel, you can still see evidence of Herod's constructions. All over Judea, Herod was into construction. People still come to be impressed by him. He had more places under construction in Judea than there are on the M1. He developed water supplies for Jerusalem. He built fortresses at Masada and Herodium. He founded new cities like Caesarea Maritima. In all of these places, Herod built palaces for himself. He built theatres and hippodromes and roads, lots of them. But by far his most ambitious building project was the redevelopment of the Solomonic Temple. The expansion of Solomon's Temple was, according to Herod, on a more magnificent scale than before. Herod hoped rebuilding the Temple in Jerusalem would bring him greater favour with the Jews that he ruled over. But really, it was only so that he could have a capital, in his own words, worthy of his dignity and grandeur. While great was the adjective attached to Herod's name, greatness wasn't the description of his character. All of these building projects by Herod, and and there were many of them, were either named in his own honour or named after the people he was trying to curry favour with. But Herod was hated by the people that he ruled over. During the last days of Herod's life, his cruelty accelerated dramatically. He became a virtual monster murdering his own children and his wives, massacring at whim. It was said by the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, a long-term and personal friend of Herod, he said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Quite a statement when you consider just how brutal and violent the Romans were. Thousands were in the process, in the procession at Herodium for his death. His burial was an extravagant affair with lots of Roman pomp, he knew that when he died, there would be widespread celebration right across the land, and so at 70 years of age and desperately ill, Herod ensured that there would be widespread lamentation for him. He arrested elders from every village in Palestine and jailed them at the Jericho Hippodrome or racetrack. Herod's instructions for these men was to kill them when he died, so that at the same time, at the same moment of his death, there would be loud lamentations across the land for him. Fortunately for the elders, and unfortunately for Herod, that event never happened. The cave at Bethlehem and the Herodian fortress in Bethlehem contrasts for us two very different kings of the Jews. People still come to worship today at the cave, but no one comes and worships at Herodian. See with me there, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who, is, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Matthew connects for us the birth of Jesus during the days of Herod as king of Judea. But he now draws our focus away from time to space. You see, the focus isn't on the twinkle-twinkle in Mary's eye, but the twinkle-twinkle of the star in the night sky. The wise men know that a star is to be born. They've come from the east to worship him. Following the star, they search for the one born king of the Jews. It's here that most people get hung up on the romance of the Christmas story. No doubt you've all heard Christmas sermons that talk about the wise men from the east. Making the point that they were called magi, ancient Near Eastern scientists and magicians. The wise men were into astronomy, which is different to astrology. Wise men studied the stars, but didn't live their life according to them. Although, on this occasion, they kind of did, didn't they? They left everything to worship the king. They left everything to follow the star towards him. When the star stopped, they stopped too. They left everything to worship him. Sound familiar? They've come from distant lands. They find the child. They bring their gifts. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They bow down. They worship him. See there verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These kings come from the ends of the earth. They come bringing gifts to the king of the Jews, but their gifts represent themselves. They are giving themselves to the king of the Jews, this infant child. Sound familiar? The Queen of Sheba did the same thing with King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. Remember Matthew chapter 1, the words there, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The other point that often gets made around this time of year is how many Magi Magi took the journey west? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us how many. But there could have been more or less than three. The Gospel writers simply don't say how many and so we simply don't know. To be fair, though, three seem like a pretty reasonable guess to, the, guess to me. I mean, that'd be a Christmas miracle, wouldn't it? Imagine finding more than three wise men in one place. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> Given they're called the wise men and traditionally the focus of this passage, you'd seriously have to question their wisdom, though, wouldn't you? How wise was it letting Herod find out about it all? Look there with verse 3. When Herod the king heard this... He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The focus isn't so much now on the Magi, it's more centred around Herod's reaction. Herod is troubled. And all of Jerusalem are troubled too. And that word troubled is, well, Troubling. It means that the news that Herod now hears causes him inner emotional turmoil and upheaval. It's an emotional reaction to what he's now heard. Another one has been born bearing his title, the king of the Jews. Herod is frightened and terrified. Herod and his Judean kingdom, all that he has built and amassed and named after himself is now directly under imminent threat. Herod's kingship under attack from a baby. That's what causes him inner emotional turmoil. And as a result, all those who live under his rule, I mean, they're in turmoil too. You see, he's an already deeply insecure king, now deeply troubled. Desperate for the approval of his people. Desperate to build a legacy for himself. Desperate to stamp his name into history. Desperate to achieve greatness. King Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. Don't you find that troubling too? The people of Jerusalem did. The king who massacred him, who murdered his own family, just to protect his own legacy. Just to preserve his own reputation, is now feeling troubled. And so trouble now comes upon everybody else. Here it is paranoid. Out of fear he inquires of the religious authorities where is the Christ to be born? Only to hear confirmation from the chief priests and the scribes that this fulfilment is the fulfilment of God's promises. From Bethlehem of Judea, says the prophet Micah, a ruler will come who will shepherd God's people. Herod now calls in the wise men, having learned, and asks them to go and search diligently for this child. Even though that's what they'd already come to do. That's why the wise men were there. Their sole purpose was to find the child. And then there's this enormous star that's hanging in the sky. Enormous star, big, huge, bright. You kind of can't miss it. Even though other people from other countries could see it. I mean, it was kind of a giveaway as to where the child might be. Still, Herod wants the wise men to go and find him. He even tells them why he wants him found. Can you see that with me in verse 8? Herod says that I too may come and worship him. I don't want you to miss this. God is fulfilling his promises to David. David was from Bethlehem. King David was a shepherd. David was a ruler over the people of God. But now in Bethlehem, in the city of David, the king has been born like one who is like David, just as Micah said. Jesus, the promised son of David. But the question I have for you is: Do you believe Herod's reasoning that I too may come and worship him? Well, the Magi didn't. After seeing the star child, they returned home. They didn't. They didn't return to see Herod. Paranoid, troubled, and emotional, and in emotional turmoil, Herod is completely self-absorbed with himself. He has no intention of worshiping anyone else especially one who now bears the title King of the Jews. Herod is incapable of worshipping another because Herod is already so full and filled with himself. His focus is totally on him and that makes it impossible to worship another. You can see Herod worships who Herod worships, can't you? The only king that Herod desires to worship is himself. King Herod the Great. Which is why his, emotionally, his emotional reaction is an overreaction again at the realisation that he's been outsmarted by these wise men. Outsmarted too by the child's parents who've now escaped by going down to Egypt. God tipped them all off in a dream, telling them to stay away from Herod. And yet ironically with the child now exiled to Egypt, it's Herod who starts behaving like an Egyptian pharaoh. Big on construction. Big on construction projects. And big on the destruction of God's people. Look there, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod's response is a highly emotional one. He's furious. (coughs) That's high-level anger. No wonder the people were troubled. When Herod was troubled, and now he's furious, he's filled with passionate, murderous, blind rage. He is just like an Egyptian pharaoh. Herod now orders the death of the sons of Israel like the pharaohs before him. Every male child within the region, two years or under, was to be killed by this monster. I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. Every male child under the age of two. Just let the weight of what's, what's happened there hit you. Can you see what kind of King Herod is? King Herod the Great. Herod comes searching for Jesus, not that he might worship him, but in order to glorify himself. And yet, through all of this trauma and this ongoing period of uncertainty, in the midst of all of this chaos and crisis and fear, God is present with his people. You see, nothing happens without God's say-so. Nothing happens without achieving God's achieving his purposes. God, the everlasting king of the universe, is sovereign and rules over all things. God is with us, promised to be present in the one named Emmanuel. All of these events fulfil God's purposes and promises. Prophecies are fulfilled through moments of pain and suffering. And God intervenes to bring about his eternal purposes. He protects his promises to his people. Well, Matthew chapter 1 tells us about Jesus' origins, his genealogy and family concerns, origins in the line of Abraham and David, origins of divinity in terms of virgin birth. Where would the Messiah come from is the question. And Matthew is very clear about all of these things. All these things are done in accordance with the Scriptures, says Matthew. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. But while Matthew chapter 1 speaks of family of origin, Matthew chapter 2 speaks of geographical origins. And so far everyone's been searching for him, even the star in the sky pointed to where he was. Wise men asked where he is, look there, verse 2, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Herod wants to know where he is ordering to search for him diligently. It's only when he becomes furious when he's not given the child's whereabouts that Herod's fury leads his parents, the parents of Jesus to flee to Bethlehem uh, to flee Bethlehem and God sends his people into exile in Egypt. Again the question is asked and answered by Matthew where where is he? His location is, uh, fulfills the Scriptures, we're told. Verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Further revelation from God to Mary and Joseph brings Jesus back to Israel, but not home, not to Bethlehem. And while Herod might have now died, tyrannical fear and danger casts very long shadows, doesn't it? Herod's son now sits on the throne of Judea. And so Mary's son is now still in danger. Trouble with local authorities is far from over for Jesus. His conflict with authorities is really only just beginning. For now, Jesus escapes with his life. And although the religious authorities will search the scriptures to anticipate the coming of the Messiah, they too will soon clash with Jesus, the King of the Jews. And when the religious leaders, the local religious authorities, combined with the local governing authorities against him, then this is the conflict that will end in his death. The one who's come to save his people is the one who is now needing to be saved himself. But it will be in the death, his death on a Roman cross, that this King of the Jews is seen to save his people from their sins. Rather than returning to Judea under the new Herod, his family of origin moved to Nazareth in Galilee. And again, this location fulfills the scriptures. Verse 23. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Where is he? Where is he, Asked Matthew and all those who are searching diligently for him. Is Jesus from Bethlehem? Is he from Egypt? Is he from Nazareth? Where is he? And where is he now? In a world full of dictators and despots, deeply troubled and furious rulers and elders, leaders who build their own empires instead of kingdoms, for themselves and for their own glory, desperate to maintain their own legacy, to keep their own reputation intact, even if they say it's being done in God's name and dress it up in language like gospel and mission. Where the church, where even the church and its leaders want to build buildings in order to amass status and receive approval, who will do anything and stop at nothing, who don't care if their actions slaughter the innocent. It's a reasonable enough question to ask, where is he? Tyrannical fear casts very long shadows, doesn't it, friends? But God is present. God is with us. That's what he promised. And if you don't know where God is right now, or if you don't know where to look or even how to find him, and I want you to listen to me very carefully now. Salt Church, you've got to go find him. You've got to go looking for him. Because all who come searching for Jesus and all who give themselves to him all who come and worship him, find him, and we it. We Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, even though we live in a world of deep uncertainty, of fear, of people who seek to build their own empires who build and amass things for themselves who name and glorify themselves by the things that they do who seek to preserve their own legacy so that they might not only be known but remembered we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for us So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the invitation to come. To come and to search for you, the one who's come to reveal yourself to us. There are moments in our life, and even in these moments towards Christmas, where it's hard to hear your voice, hard to know your presence, hard to see what you're doing, particularly in the midst of pain and chaos. Would you help us to come and search for you, the one who has revealed yourself to us? Would you help us to know that you're with us, Emmanuel, our God with us, the one who promises to be with us? We thank you that yours is a kingdom that is not like this world. We thank you that you are the one who will be glorified and that your name will be exalted. So we pray, Lord Jesus. Those of us who question, those of us who feel lost, those of us who feel uncertain, would you help us to come into worship that we might know you and find you? For we ask the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.